Um, and what about you, Sarah? What's the most insane housing situation that, that you've lived in? I found myself living with like seven other chicks and sharing one bathroom. It was so insane. And then like, I don't live in a better position. I live in a living room, which is like, I'm paying a lot to live there, but I still have like four other roommates, which is not even, even any better yet. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data reporter with CalMatters. Liam Dillon, staff writer with the Los Angeles Times. And we have a package, Liam. We do. Finally. It's it's here. Um, Liam looks haggard and exhausted after, uh, now he looks like he's taking it personally, after, <laughs> <laughs> after slaving away reporting late into the night, Thursday and Friday. Thursday and Friday. Yes. yes. And into Saturday morning on Friday. Yes. Or... That doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean. Yes. Yes. He's still somewhat hungover from <laughs> end of session. Um, but today on the podcast, uh, we are going to break down why we actually did get a housing package this time around. We are also, it's possible we'll have an interview um, with a key player in that housing package. It's, it's unsure yet, um, but it's possible we'll be able to speak with that person tomorrow. And then the general plan is we're going to go into the politics of the package this week, and then the week after we will wonk out, which is a phrase I absolutely hate, but it'll probably be a good description. You just said it, though. I know. I know. Um, It's not a good phrase. It just means you care about the details of policy, which often make or break policy. That's all it means. That's true. Yes. Anyway, and on that one, we want to solicit questions from you guys. I don't know if, Liam, there was... Yeah, so, you know, just, I mean, the basic, the basic outline of the deal that was struck and ultimately got passed by the legislature and the Governor Brown has pledged to sign is there are 15 bills. Um, you know, we've talked most about three of them, but there are 15 of them that ultimately got passed, ranging from some new, new planning requirements or new uh, sort of set-aside requirements, all these sorts of things. We're going to go into the depth of the policy of those details um, next week, but we want to know sort of what you want to know uh, about about all of these bills, and we're, we're hopefully we'll be able to, to answer some of your questions. And we already saw some good questions already on Twitter, so just keep them coming at us, email us, send us a carrier pigeon, whatever works. But first, our ever-popular recurring segment, the Avocado of the Week. Avocado of the Week. Yes, I need to force Liam to say avocado more. Avocado and heroin. <laughs> um, it's a delicious breakfast combination. <laughs> so our avocado this week, not so whimsical, but does kind of dovetail into what we're going to talk about, which is the politics of this housing package and how was how legislators were actually able to pull this off. It is way too early to gauge the impact of this housing package. And Liam has done some really good reporting, noting that the actual legislation, when you model it out, isn't going to make a huge dent in our affordability crisis, right? Yes. Uh, do you... and, and it was confirmed by Carol Galante, who's, uh, you know, the housing honcho at Berkeley, and so I feel pretty solid in my estimation. It was Liam alone on his abacus feel, <laughs> figured this out. No, it was well-vetted reporting. Mm-hmm. But there were already some early signs this past week, even predating the passage of the package, that I thought kind of pointed to the packages potential impact, I would say. Part of the package was AB 1505, which basically allowed for something called inclusionary zoning for 
uh, rental units. And yeah. Liam... Yeah, so inclusionary is essentially allowing a city uh, to force a developer to set aside a certain percentage of their project for uh, lower middle income housing. And this was something that was not allowed um, for rental housing uh, because of a court case. Uh, and now we're, because of the bill that passed, uh, we're going to be able to see it for, for rental housing. And this was one of the more controversial bills in the package, I would say. Yes. The governor had vetoed this earlier. He did. Um, San Jose, the city of San Jose, which has had many a internal housing uh, quarrel, uh, in response to the package, uh, said that they would be re- reactivating their inclusionary zoning policy when it came to new multifamily units. They were going to put it at 15%. So 15% of all new multifamily units would have to go to an affordable housing as a condition of the development being approved. So you're already beginning to see at least some response to what was in the package. The other kind of notable event was down in Montebello, which is in uh, southeast LA County. They were, this was, this preceded the package, but they uh, were rezoning um, some land that was zoned for commercial purposes for mixed-use development, and part of which included affordable housing. And part of the explanation for why they were doing that, um, I thought, was noteworthy. So there's a quote from. By the way, I should say this is from the Whittier Daily News. But Matthew Feske, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, who is the planning manager in Montebello, said the state of California is in a housing crisis. This, meaning their rezoning, is part of the solution. Otherwise, the state will come in and take care of this. So you can always you can already see how certain local officials might be using what's happening at the state level as at least kind of a political shield to build more housing. You think that's fair to say? Well, yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, because again, given the structure of how housing approvals work in in California, uh, it's cities and counties who are the ones who get the ultimate say. And so the state, you know, that's what we've set up. And so whatever the state does uh, uh, is at a level removed. And so how cities react, uh, whether they try to block some of these reforms uh, or some of these efforts from getting done, or whether they embrace them, or whether they try to work around them or whatever, that's going to really play a determinative role in, in what ultimate impact that, that this legislation will have. All right. Now to the number of the week. We've dispensed with the avocado. The number of the week this week is? 1130. And why is it 1130? Because that was the time that the key vote on the housing package finally got done. So uh, we're going to do this in two parts. Liam is going to break down the drama of that night. He was actually there. And then we're going to kind of go into why why this year was finally the year that we saw a housing package. Uh, so Liam, I guess it's story time. Tell yeah, us. Hi, hi drama, man. You know, we're in there. Uh, we heard Thursday afternoon, uh, Senator Tony Atkins, who is the author of Senate Bill 2, which was sort of the key plank in this package. This is the $75 real estate fee that required a two-thirds supermajority vote of the legis- both houses of the legislature to pass. This was the bill that was the hardest to get done and holding up all of the rest, right? And so Thursday afternoon, she told me that they were going to vote. They were finally going to vote with two days left um, or less than two days left by that point. And so, you know, we all go get dinner and then come back uh, around 7, 8 o'clock and then uh, they open it up. Um, and about a 15-minute discussion and we get to, and with a key part of that is we had a Republican uh, assemblyman stand up, uh, Brian Mainshine from uh, Northern San Diego, stand up and say, I'm going to vote for this. And so that gave uh, Democrats um, some breathing room where one of them could stay off and, and vote no in the package or that particular bill, which again, the key plank in the package could pass. So 
they open the roll call vote, and they need 54 votes, and boom, they're at 52. And it stayed that way for an hour. <laughs> an hour. Much to the delight of all the reporters covering it. So this the assembly chamber was packed, staffers and media and everyone behind, and just a tremendous amount of drama. And there were three Democrats who had held off. This was uh, Sabrina Cervantes of Riverside, Adrin Nazarian of North Hollywood, and Mark Levine of San Rafael. And Cervantes is sort of seen as um, the one of, if not the most vulnerable Democrat. She won a, a, a seat that was uh, unexpected uh, for her to win last year, um, and so certainly a targeted seat uh, next year in the election. However, uh, Levine and Zarian face no such concern about their re-election bid. Yeah. And so it was funny because... They were like not even on the floor when the when the call roll call wrote happened. They were out on the portico, sort of a balcony. You can look outside, right? And then they then after a few minutes, they're both sort of called into what's known as the principal's office, uh, this conference room that the speaker Anthony Rendon controls, and they you know had a nice chat for an hour over uh, coffee and beer. Guinness. There was Guinness. Ugh. Yeah, I know Guinness in a bottle That's is a, rough. Ugh. Rough man. <laughs> I'm surprised they came to a deal after I that. Probably just to stop drinking the Guinness. That's right. Really. Yes, yeah. please stop this. Yeah. Let's go to Levine a little bit and talk about. Let's talk about his background a little bit when it comes to housing policy. Yeah. So he um, uh, sort of evoked the the ire of large segments of the housing community earlier this year because he snuck in a provision to a budget bill that uh, exempts um, Marin uh, from some of, the, some of the, the rules that every other jurisdiction in the, in the state has to face with respect to the amount of um, sort of housing density, they, the minimum they're allowed to have um, to comply with sort of state housing law. And this was a sort of a, a kind of, um, uh, this is a, the bill, the way that he did it didn't go through the normal sort of policy committee process. It was in this budget bill that um, in a lot of ways was unrelated to this topic. And so the affordable housing folks got really angry about this because they thought that he was, you know, shirking uh, his county's responsibility to provide uh, low-income housing the way same way all the rest of the counties in the state have to. And Marin, of course, um, is one of the wealthiest counties in the state, uh, uh, but also, you know, super white. I mean, it is one of the most segregated counties in the state, if not the country as well. Uh, and so there's been a long amount of struggle about building low-income housing and integrating uh, that community, uh, uh, especially given all the wealth that's there um, and its proximity to San Francisco. Uh, and so this is sort of seen as another kind of kind of kind of way where they were getting a benefit that other communities don't. Do you think he was fairly or unfairly portrayed as a? I mean, he's basically a wrestling heel of for <laughs> pro housing, pro development forces, right? Whether they're affordable housing advocates or you know, Yimbies, right? Like Levine, after this came out, became a walking symbol of nimbyism, right? Well, he certainly, I mean, it was funny watching my Twitter feed during, while during that hour when, when the vote That's was That's right. And Levine was getting roasted, man. He was just, all the pro-housing folks were really Because they upset. knew him. Because they knew who he was because of the previous deal. And so, you know, he was seen as a guy who, who particularly from like such a wealthy county. That's and right. so, you know... Uh, you know, and such such a safe seat, um, you know, is certainly seen as someone who uh, is not was 
quote-unquote, with the program that a lot of the Democrats and housing advocates uh, sort of are on this issue. And particularly a suburban Bay Area county, right? Exactly. Where the, the tension is often between San Francisco and Oakland and the more urban components of it and the wealthy suburbs not keeping up their fair share. That's always the argument. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Nazarian. Yeah. So um, it was sort of weird because it's like, what, you know, why is this guy holding out? Um, and so... What we learned, uh, you know, later on is possibly a clue to what uh, what was actually going on here. Um, so he had a completely unrelated bill related to an energy issue that had been held in a Senate financial committee weeks ago. And he was mad, man. He was really mad about that and really wanted to get passed. And so I'll tell you what he told me. I'll read, read the exact quote about how mad he was. Please. He said... I had decided that I would, from time to time, abstain on several bills uh, at a time indiscriminately, just that there would be a certain level of discomfort, or at least a message to the leadership that we can't be arbitrary. So, here he was, holding out on a Senate bill, um, authored by Senator Tony Atkins, because he was mad at Senate leadership um, for holding his, his energy bill. And so... So it wasn't about housing. Uh, he said he had had some concerns about the bill, um, but also at the same time, he told me that at the end of the day, it was his favorite bill in the entire housing package. So be that as it may. Uh, but but the fascinating thing about this is all of a sudden, the next day, the last day of the legislative session, yeah. Nazarian's energy bill is freed up from the Senate committee, which never happens so late in the game, weeks afterwards, and then ends up passing, passing both houses. And so, um, you know... There you go. I mean, both he and Speaker Rendon insisted there was no deal that was made, but there are a lot of dots that are out there, let's say. Yeah. And so th- this is something that would happen on, you know, a-, a lot of pieces of legislation that require the vote of one or two members to get it through, right? This this wouldn't be unique to housing. However, you know, because they took up housing so late in the game, right, there's this impending deadline of, oh, God, this is not going to get done, right? Exactly. And you, and you saw... So there's saw more measures, leverage for him. You saw measures in the gas tax. Um, you know, they, they you know, Senator Anthony Canella, a Republican uh, uh, um, from um, Ceres, uh, you know, they, yeah. he got a lot of money for a train. In the um, Central Valley. In the Central Valley. Yeah. And, you know, it's called the Ace Train. And there were a lot of jokes around the Capitol that it should be named the Anthony Canal Express because he got all the money appropriated to it as a result of, you know, him him voting yes on the gas tax. Uh, do we know what Levine got out of it, if if anything? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. So, so that it's very possible that, you know, with all these things, including some of the Democrats who went up on this... Um, who didn't hold out in that last oh, hour yeah. got whatever concessions that they they want for the next legislative session, there, there right? There could have, and I'm sure there were deals cut weeks ago, days That's ago, right. prior to that, that were perhaps not as stark as sort of what happened with, with the Nazarian situation. Let's talk about Manshine some more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- without his vote, the only Republican to vote for SB2, right. um, without which it was questionable whether the entire package would get passed. Exactly. Without his vote, does this get does this happen? I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, Cervantes was you know kind of on the fence, and after she, him voting yes, allowed her to vote no, and she didn't just abstain. She said no and put out a statement afterwards, calling you know SB two a regressive tax. 
Uh, and so, you know, who knows whether there was two statements that were prepped, right, uh, for this, but, but she, you know, was, um, uh, they really wanted to protect her. And so there was no arm twisting of her during this process. It was all Levine and Nazarian. And who knows whether they would have would needed to do that um, uh, on her had, uh, uh, you know, had, had Manshine said no. And so the, the risk from Manshine's perspective is, I mean, you just laid it out, right? A, from his re- fellow Republicans, a vulnerable Democrat could have taken a very difficult vote. Cervantes yeah. could have taken a very difficult vote. She's going to have a tough reelection battle. You know, I think there's legitimate debate as to how tough this vote is. I personally really do. Yeah. Um, but regardless, that, that perception's out there. That's right. And Manshine gave her breathing room. She didn't have to. She she could vote no, and now she could go to her constituents and say, I voted I'm, against a regressive tax. I'm a moderate Democrat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm yeah. truly a moderate Democrat. Right. And that, that does hurt the whole caucus because, you know, that it, it is a benefit, as we've seen this year, for Democrats to have that two-thirds supermajority. They can do lots of things. They don't necessarily need, although, you know, in every single vote, actually, um, of these two-thirds, there was at least Republican, one Republican who said yes uh, on the gas tax increase, on the cap-and-trade extension back over the summer, and now on this housing package, uh, a Republican said yes in, in, in each of those circumstances. Let's get to why this got passed. Why is it in... So, so why is this year different from all other years? <laughs> I thought we said no Jew jokes. <laughs> so, that was the one rule of this podcast was no Jew jokes, Liam. So... So, uh, Happy New Year, by the way. Um, so, so uh, you know, in, in my view, there were three things that were different about this year as compared to last year and, and probably compared to some of the years going forward. Um, so last year, uh, there was sort of a, a deal on the table to kind of um, combine uh, uh, $40 million in funding for low-income developments while um, getting some sort of uh, streamlining local regulations. And the governor and the legislature could not agree on the details of that. Plus, there had been an effort for years uh, to, uh, to come up with sort of this permanent source of funding, which SB2 does, uh, to have some sort of dedicated reven- ongoing revenue stream for, uh, for low-income housing, which is particularly a uh, concern of advocates since uh, sort of the redevelopment urban renewal program ended in 2011. And so none of these things ever, ever passed. And so, um, you know, the reason why, why this did, uh, you know, I, I could point to three things. Um, the first being this year, we've had a bunch of the powerful interest groups, which we described, you know, in our first podcast, um, align. You know, you had the Realtors Association, which is a very powerful group on the money side, saying, yes, we support um, this, this real estate transaction fee. And that's because they, they um, the, that home sales were taken out of it. And so with that off the table, they were able to come and support it. Similarly, on sort of this uh, local regulation streamlining side, last year, the very powerful um, construction workers union, the state building trades, um, uh, opposed the governor's effort because there were no union level wage standards uh, as a part of uh, as a part of that streamlining effort this year that was put in there, and so they ultimately ended up coming on board. Uh, and so you had these powerful groups kind of all on the same side for this for sort of the first time. Second, um, the governor. Well, just yeah. just one second on that. So with and the. Yes, that that was completely instrumental in getting this this package across. The counter argument to that is it watered down the legislation, right? In 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 terms of we would have had more money, advocates would have had more money for affordable housing, 
Right. If home sales were part of the transaction. Exactly. Fee, which, yeah. which I know what you're going to say, which yeah. probably had very little chance of getting through the legislature, but just to make it clear. That's right. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of people, this is somewhat debatable, but there's a lot of people who would say that adding the prevailing wage to SB 35 is going to make it more difficult for developers to pencil out their projects that qualify. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And so you have a narrower um, impact, um, but you have a possible impact, if you will. Like, uh, so this, this is what was possible given the structure of where the interest groups aligned, what got passed was what, what was acceptable to them. So do you, do you think it was impossible to do a package without those two specific concessions attached to those two bills? That's a really good question. Um, I think at this point, yes. Um, based on what happened last year? Not only based on what happened last year, but also given how narrow it took it was for this thing to get through. Um, you know, I mean, literally, we were waiting an hour for two people to push a button um, after weeks and weeks and weeks of negotiations to get there on the money side. And then on the, you know, and then again, going back to what happened last year on the sort of streamlining side, I mean, that proposal without prevailing wage in it, without those union level wage standards, didn't even get a hearing. And so I think it's very clear um, sort of where the power lies. And if the power aligns, then you're able to get something done. Yeah. Um, continue with so what the, you were so going So the to second say. thing is that um, the governor wanted something this year yes. that he needed uh, the legislature's help for. Um, and lawmakers decided, particularly Assembly Democrats, decided to use that as leverage. And so over the summer, the governor really wanted an extension to cap and trade. And as part of that, there were progressive Democrats, um, particularly Assemblyman David Chu from San Francisco, Assemblyman Rob Bonta from Oakland, and Assemblyman uh, Richard Bloom from Santa Monica, who used the opportunity to sort of leverage the governor to say, hey, we want you to commit to doing something on housing. And so what they got was a statement from the governor saying, I'm going to support sort of these key, three key planks, the three key, key bills in sort of concept that we've been talking about um, during those cap and trade discussions. And so the, the day, literally the day of the vote, a statement came out from the governor and the Speaker of the Assembly and the Senate President Pro Tem saying, we're going to do housing as our top priority at the end of the year. And that sort of focus from the governor and declared public focus from the governor was something new. Tell me about interest groups and their influence on SB3, the bond measure. Yeah, so the governor has had a, this sort of historic reluctance to support um, general fund debt, right, through bond uh, through bond sales. And so um, uh, what's happening now is that you have a couple of outside interest groups, uh, environmental groups um, uh, and agricultural interests, who are financing potential bond measures for the 2018 ballot that would be on the order of you know, seven billion, eight billion, nine billion dollars to fund water improvements, other infrastructure improvements, flood control, thing like things like that. Yeah. Governor doesn't want seven, eight billion, nine, you know, seven, eight, nine billion dollars in uh, in bonds. He wants to be able to control what those bond measures actually are. And so, um, by doing it sort of legislatively, if he supports, you know, four billion for housing, and then another potential four billion that he would control and the legislature would control for parks and water, which ultimately ended up happening as well. Yeah. Then he gets to control the bond debt at like eight at a level, and for projects that he wants 
versus whatever these outside interest groups are going to do. And so we'll see if those groups go away, given that the legislature agreed to $4 billion in, in funding for parks and water. Uh, but that's certainly top of mind um, when he's agreeing to accept debt that potentially could be less than w- w- what voters would approve at the ballot box anyway. And controlling debt is not only a central element of his brand, I would say, as a governor, but yes. increasingly a cornerstone of his legacy, right? Absolutely. Yes, yes. as the fiscally prudent Jerry Brown. Right. Um, all right, let's very prematurely look to next year. This is like in like three hours after they declared Trump as president, they were already talking about who is going to run next. Who is going to run yeah. against them yeah, four yeah, years yeah. later. Yeah. A few trends we should watch out for in 2018. Let's start with, um, we were just talking about bonds. Yeah. Let's talk about bonds more. Yeah. So they're going to be on the ballot. And so I think, you know, we're not, you know, a lot of the advocates energy. Because remember, like, they passed a $3 billion bond, but that doesn't mean we have $3 billion. Voters have to approve it. Voters have to approve it in next November. Um, And so I think the legislator or the advocates are going to be needing to raise money and raise support um, to try to get the bond across the finish line when it comes before before voters in, you know, next November. And so a lot of the energy is going to be directed in that in, in, in that area. And we should say recently California voters have approved a good number of bonds that have been on the ballot. That's right. And uh, and so I, I think probably because of that, the chances are more likely than not um, that, that this would, would, would gain get enough support. But that's certainly far from a slam dunk. Uh, what else might be on the ballot that would impact housing policy in the state? Yeah, so there are a couple of initiatives that are being sort of tossed around right now by the Realtors and then Howard Jarvis Taxpayer Association. So what the Realtors want to do, and, and I'll keep this short because we're, I know we're going to talk about this a lot more later, especially if this uh, comes to, comes to, actually comes to, to, to pass or comes to actually go on the ballot. But it's um, basically they want to sort of make Prop 13's tax benefits more portable. So one of the issues that have sort of this uh, consequence of Prop 13 is you don't, if you're in your house, you, there's an incentive not to sell it because then you have to, you know, you, you get a, a new super high tax rate um, compared to the, the new super high costly house that you're buying. And so what the Realtors measure in one, one way or another would allow you to kind of take a percentage of what your tax benefit was in your existing house to your new one. And so that would be super controversial and super interesting, uh, but that would definitely be something that would, that, that would take up a lot of oxygen on the ballot next year. The other potential measure, this is an increase to the renter and homeowner tax credit. So right now, um, I believe the homeowner tax credit is 70 bucks and the renter's tax credit is 60. And the Jarvis Association proposal would uh, increase that to to $500 each uh, each year. And then it would index that to sort of the cost of housing. And so that would continue to go up. Uh, And so obviously voting on a tax break is for people, for everyone is popular. You know, (laughs) everyone's gonna wanna pay less in taxes, uh, but we'll see how much of an impact that would be on revenues, presumably substantial. And where where do the initiatives currently stand? So they both um, uh, sort of the, neither neither the drivers nor the realtors have decided whether they're going to move forward or not. They're kind of polling and kind of testing to see which ver- the different versions of these. Yeah. Um, so they're not in circulation. They're not yet. in circulation yet. No, you're not going to go down to the grocery store and see someone asking you to sign a piece of paper to support this to get this on the ballot. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Yes. Yeah. That's we all love that. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. If these ended up on the ballot, what type of interest groups would oppose either of these? Good question. Um, yeah, it's one I haven't really thought about very yeah, much either. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, um, a lot of the, a lot of the, there could be a decent amount of pushback or backlash from lawmakers um, 
who you know would say that need, we need the money. You know why you want to sort of starve government. Um, and 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 I think that maybe that's an angle that we'll see. Also, I'd be interested to see sort of some of these um, pro housing groups, yeah. sort of how they react to this. Prop because, thirteen. Yeah, because yeah. because you know I've characterized the Realtors Initiative as. Um, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with Prop 13 that Prop 13 can't fix. It right? is. It is it, essentially an expansion of Prop it's, 13. It's just more Prop 13. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot of folks, obviously, who have problems with that, um, and, and might have problems with that with that approach. And yes. it would it would uh, exacerbate the divide between home, homeowners and renters. Uh, the realtors measure in particular. For yes. Sure. Yeah. Um, also, it would be interesting to see how baby boomers react to that realtors initiative because there's, I mean. It doesn't only apply to if you if it's your first home going to a second home, right? There's a lot of, especially people in their 50s and early 60s who want to downsize but don't. That's be- right. Because it's too expensive property tax-wise. That's right. There's some portability available in certain communities if you're over 55 right now under Prop 13, but this would this you know version of this would expand that uh, much more broadly. Yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Now my favorite, rent control. Yeah, so uh, right before we get to that, I think this is a point you've made that we're not going to, there's almost certainly not going to be any more money proposals in the legislature next year. So we're not going to see any more affordable housing dollars um, kind of being proposed or not in a serious way be, for a variety of reasons. We talked about advocates going to be focused on the bond. We've talked about the fact that we just sort of just had this right uh, passed for the first time. And also, you know, these votes are really hard. And in an election year, it's almost certain, certainly we're not going to we're not going to see that again. Yes. And, and that is part of the reason why this passed this year was because yes. if they were going to pass it, it had to be this. It year. had to be this year. It's not going to happen next year. And yeah. so what's going to happen then in the legislature, in and, and my view, one of, if not the premier um, discussions that we're going to have is, is going to be over rent control. I mean, there is a proposal this year from Simon Bloom, we mentioned earlier, to repeal Costa-Hawkins, which is sort of the primary restrictions on on expanding rent control throughout the state. And he has pledged to, to come back uh, with that next year and have a whole big debate about it. And I know there are a lot of tenant advocacy groups that are really riled up and fired up about it. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see. Um, we'll see what kind of reception that gets. How big a fight do you think is going to be? Uh, I mean, I realize that's a very broad question, but yeah. I mean, I think in in some ways it'll be. Um, I think in some ways the fight will be uh, interestingly like maybe more external than it will be internal. It's almost more like a. It's almost more like a litmus test, kind of like. What do you mean? Well, like, like you know, there was a lot, and I don't, I don't want to compare this to like the big single payer fight we had, um, you know, at the Capitol this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that is sort of the only reason I'm making that comparison is that's more of a it's this really large symbolic thing. And I, believe me, I'm not trying to say that like there's no actual policy impact of, of having rent control uh, or not, right? But yeah. there's, there's a it's a huge, a lot of economists would say there's a huge. Well, of course there yeah. is, but I, but I think that this is something sort of easy that people can understand. Yes. Sort of know what it means. Yes. And you're not talking like this big internal war about whether the building trades want prevailing wage or not on streamlining. Yes. You're talking about like a very important symbolic that thing. everyone understands. That everyone understands, and they have a very as clear, opposed to buy right. As opposed to, the, I don't still even know what buy right means, right? So, so, so you you can walk just down someone on the street, and they're gonna have an opinion on rent control, right? And and so I think that that because of of that, you're gonna have a debate that's gonna be bigger than the capital. 
Whereas a lot of these arguments, um, you know, around policy this year were very sort of insular looking um, about like what interest groups believe on this. And certainly interest groups are going to be very powerful in this debate, but we're going to have a lot, it's going to be more talky, I think. Like, I think there's going to be all corners of the state is going to have more of an opinion on this because it's something that's sort of easily understandable and easily uh, digestible. Yes. Um, so. Yeah. That's um, my guess. It'll be interesting. Yeah, but remember, I was wrong about them having a housing vote on Wednesday. I was also wrong about them not getting any Republicans <laughs> vote for SB two. Someone so, else might have slightly not predicted that, but hinted in that direction. It's possible. Yes. <laughs> so, so uh, who knows? Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, you're still the only reporter here that covers housing policy, so you're you're job secure. You're good. All right. Anything else? Did we cover? I think we Let's did. Just, just a reminder that cheese you know, next week. Next week we're going to come back and break down all fifteen of the bills that were passed as part of this package. And we really want to know what you what you're interested in in and having us try to answer. So we'll do our best. You know, at me at Dylan Liam on Twitter. Uh, you can at me at M Levin Reports or at CA Housing Pod. Yes, which has some followers. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. A yeah, little bit. A little bit. Uh, thanks everyone for listening too. We, Liam and I have been very pleased with the the number of listens we've been getting. Shocked and yeah, shocked. So wow, thanks. yeah. Well, Liam obviously had very low expectations. <laughs> as well as like, if you have ideas for other things you're curious about, even beyond the package, we're interested to hear them. All right, and with that, you may or may not be hearing an interview after this. We're here with Assemblyman Brian Mainshine of San Diego, the lone Republican in the entire legislature to vote for Senate Bill 2, which was the uh, $75 real estate transaction fee that, with money that goes to fund uh, low-income housing development across California. And so his vote, uh, given that, was pretty decisive, and we want to understand um, more about why he decided to make that decision. And so, uh, Assemblyman, when I was there on the floor uh, listening to you talk about this, um, you spoke a lot about your background on homelessness issues in San Diego and also some of the uh, current issues going on uh, in San Diego uh, on, on this matter. And so hoping you, we could start by having you explain sort of some of the things that you did uh, before you came to the legislature in, as it relates to homelessness and, 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 and what you learned from that. Sure. Um, I was the homeless commissioner for San Diego County uh, for four years, and it really a, a deep and profound and lasting impact on me. I, um, you know, I worked every day with homeless people. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't some sort of theoretical uh, issue for me. It was something that I was doing. I was kind of, you know, at ground zero for it, and it, it did. It had a very uh, permanent and profound impact on me. Uh, I created Project 25, which uh, took the most long-term homeless, the most seriously mentally ill out on the streets in San Diego and got them housing and services. And uh, so I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the work that I did. And and uh, so it's an issue that I just care very, very deeply about. So when this came before the legislature, I wanted to look at it seriously and uh, did so, and I, and you know, I did what I thought was the right thing, and um, whether 
you know, I don't look at it as a partisan issue and it, whether the rest of people in my party agreed with it or not, uh, I, I did the right thing. And, uh, and so I voted for it. Did, did you have hesitation voting for SB2? And, and if so, why? Well, it's a bit, you know, anytime I think a massive issue like that comes up, you know, I think you have to treat it seriously. I don't, you know, generally speaking, I don't like increases in fees. And so, you know, I did that part of it. I didn't like. Um, but in this instance, you look at I, I looked at a couple things. Uh, one is we really we, we have an emergency here in San Diego. And it's not just my a subject. I, I subjectively view it. Uh, as an emergency, but it's even objective in the sense that this, that the mayor and council have declared uh, a state of emergency because of a hepatitis A outbreak amongst the homeless population. We've had 16 homeless people die on the streets in the last year. I mean, that's staggering, staggering. Now, we also have in San Diego 421 confirmed cases of hepatitis A. They have hired a special sanitation crew to go out and hose off the streets and clean it. And as of yet, we don't even have any indication whether that's working or not. So we have a state of emergency here. Um, it's, the human cost is staggering. I would add, too, that there's an economic factor because I represent a city that uh, derives a significant amount of dollars from tourism. And who's going to tra want to travel to a city that has hepatitis A and there's sanitation crews hosing off the streets? That's not very uh, attractive. That, that won't make it in the SeaWorld commercial, I don't think. Exactly. No, no. no exactly. <laughs> You're exactly right. And if you have it between, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I have two daughters. We decide where we're going to take our summer vacation. And, and if we have to pick between a couple cities, and I can assure you that the city with the hepatitis A outbreak uh, isn't going to be the one that I'm going to choose to take my two daughters to. So, and I think a lot of people feel that way. So I think there's a, 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 a human cost here, 16 deaths and 400 cases of hepatitis, 400 plus cases of hepatitis A. And there's also an economic cost because tourism is going to be impacted. So uh, to me, uh, doing nothing wasn't an option to me. And this, I felt, uh, would do something to, to help this situation. You're, you're obviously not the only uh, Republican legislator from the San Diego area. Did you try to make that argument to your fellow Republicans from from your region? I've looked at voting. I, I have to tell you, I mean, I look at voting that people have to do what they think is best for whatever their reasons are. And so I don't, you know, right, wrong or whatever I feel about when, you know, people quote vote right or people quote vote wrong. I think they have to do what what they think. You know, I give the reasons I have to make a decision for me and the district that I represent. But the other individuals, you know, they're elected, and and uh, I think they've got to make the best decision that they can for themselves and for their districts. You know, when, when we were talking about this, uh, Matt and I, and then also when I was talking with a number of kind of uh, housing advocates and other people in the Capitol, um, 
this is an interesting vote in the context of what happened over the summer, where when you had members of your party in the assembly, a number of them sort of go up and vote in favor of the cap and trade extension. That really sort of sparked, you know, a very uh, almost a crisis within your caucus um, where, you know, ultimately the the leader um, got booted out. Right. Um, uh, Because they were voting for something that was, a you know, a fee increase or a tax increase or whatever you want to call it. And that and that led to some folks arguing that gives cover to Democrats who, you know, you folks yeah. presumably want to vote out. And so um, I'm wondering whether you've kind of felt any of that same kind of heat from your colleagues and, and, and whether you feel concerned about potentially giving someone like Sabrina Cervantes from Riverside cover to not have to vote for this. Well, let me say two things on that. One is I do think it takes courage to stand up um, when you're the only one in your political party. I, I do agree with that. Um, but what I would say after that is this is a completely different issue than cap and trade or the gas tax. Those are huge um, tax increases with a very tenuous connection to doing anything with that tax money. I mean, you look look at the gas tax, for example. I mean, already how much of that, before the gas tax has even been collected, how, many, how much of that has been diverted to factors other than roads. But to your larger point, um, what I would say is, I think that's one of the things wrong about politics today is this gamesmanship, is we, that, that Republicans or Democrats should vote in a way that injures the other party. And I also think that it's very, you know, to, to start figuring out a chess game that you're going to be up there to vote in some way to affect for example, you mentioned her Sabrina Cervantes's re-election impacts. I don't know how in the world anyone can predict Sabrina Cervantes's re-election chances. Mm-hmm. She, mm-hmm. she doesn't even have an right, for example for right now. She doesn't even have an opponent. Mm-hmm. Sure. So yeah. you know to sit and say I'm gonna put my district's needs secondary to a prediction as to what this means for Sabrina Cervantes. I mean. If somebody's doing that, I think that's pathetic, and that's not what they're—that's not what anyone should be elected to do. I, have you gotten any feedback from uh, your fellow Republican legislators on your vote? What what have those conversations been like? Yeah, no, I haven't. Hmm. No, no one's talked to you about it. I mean, again, you're, I, I think I, I think when I made the vote, I. You know, like, like, like I've said, I didn't look at it as a political <coughs> calculation. I look, I, I meant exactly what I said when I made my speech. Um, if other Republicans don't want to support it, that's that's up to them. I mean, that's uh, you know, I, whatever they want to do, one way or the other is fine. So, so you've been in office now uh, since 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 2012. Um, wh- what have you seen in terms of how the housing debate has changed um, in general and whether whether there has been a, a difference between Republican or Democrat attitudes uh, as it relates to it? Um, I think it's more on the front burner now. Uh, I think homelessness has become more of an issue statewide <coughs> than than maybe it was uh, than maybe it was in 2012. Uh, it's a little harder question for me personally, because homelessness has always been front and center for me because of my work as the homeless commissioner. So, you know, it's hard to say kind of, you know, what does everybody else think about it? Um, Just generally speaking, I think I've seen uh, a little more uh, recognition 
that it's a problem. And I will tell you, it, it's a problem that doesn't go away easy because there's so many factors that go into it. You know, there's some things you can kind of solve easier than others, right? That kind of have a cause and an effect. But uh-huh. Homelessness has, there's so much that goes into making an individual homeless. You know, mental illness is a major one. Uh, the, the state of the economy is another one. Drug and alcohol abuse is another one. And, and some people, all of these are combined together. So even if you could cure someone, let's say, of their drug and alcohol problem, they still may have mental illness and no job. Or you, you know what I mean? Or you could still, yeah. if you get rid of their mental illness, they still may have a drug and alcohol problem. So all these things come together to make it very complicated as to how you go about solving it. Mm-hmm. So that's a nice, decent segue into kind of what, what do you think the housing issues here at the Capitol are going to be the most relevant or, or important next year? And what, you know, what are we going to be talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think this was, you know, this was a very significant step. Uh, and so to see how this plays out, how our units going to actually get built, you know, what's going to end up happening here. I think that's a, that's a big issue. Um, I think one thing that I would like to see is more of a focus on mental health. I think if the state had a more functioning uh, mental health hospital system, it would be very helpful. And I think that's one area the state could make some significant strides. So you're talking about like state run, more state run or? or Yes, state run, state funded. I mean, something where you have a mental health safety net. I was wondering, you know, it seems like a lot of the attention around housing affordability issues broadly is focused on the Bay Area and Los Angeles. Um, I'm wondering, is there anything unique about the housing affordability crisis in San Diego that people from the rest of the state should know? I I think San Diego is always going to have some inherent uh, issues. And one of them, one of the reasons is because it's such a desirable place to live. Yes, it's and nice down there. It is. It's, it's fantastic. I yeah. wish I was yeah. down there right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, you're right. I mean, it's a great, and it's a reason why everybody wants to come here and visit. You know, hence my early, earlier comments, why so many tourists come here. Because it is beautiful. And you mentioned, you know, amusement parks and parks. And it's just a great, uh, it's a great place to visit. It's a great place to live. So housing will always be expensive here. There's just no way of getting around it um, ever. So I think that's going to be an inherent problem. And, you know, the weather here is really nice. It's a great place to be. So I think some of these issues are just always going to exist. You know, the Bay Area has very expensive housing, too. So, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to create, you know, what's considered affordable, in, in places, in, in many places throughout the state. Having said that, there's also many places throughout the state where housing is incredibly cheap and incredibly affordable. And there should be a focus on those areas too because it's a shorter and quicker route. What do you mean? So, I mean, a lot of those places, there's not, you know, the, the, there aren't any jobs there, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so how do you, you know, work to promote housing in a place where the economic opportunity is not the well, same as true. it might be in, in the Bay Area or LA or San Diego. You're right. you know? No, yeah. you're totally right. And again, that gets at, that's exactly right. And that gets at what <laughs> there are some places in the state that the local economy is terrible. 
And yep. so that's not a reasonable option. And that's, a, you know, kind of go back where we almost started this discussion is that's what makes it really hard because some of the areas where you could get housing cheaper don't have an econ- a good economic base. Some of the places that have a good ac- economic base have really expensive housing. It, it also seems that in the Bay Area and Los Angeles, specifically, there are these kind of very vocal yes in my backyard groups that are pushing for more construction, not just of affordable housing, but just housing, period. And I'm wondering, are, are you seeing that in San Diego? Um, and, and if it's not as big of a presence, what, why do you think it's not? Um, I, well, I think the biggest reason is, well, I shouldn't say the biggest reason. Definitely one of the reasons is people are concerned about infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We just come out of a drought where we've all been told we don't have much water. Uh, and we know that's always, again, talk about another thing that's always going to be a problem in California. I mean, we kind of do live in a desert and water is always going to be an issue. So if you're, if you're already told, you know, we, gotta, we don't have much water and then people are concerned when they see new units coming up. When people are stuck in traffic every single day to and from work for an hour, you know, the thought of new units coming up and no roads causes concern. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think a lot of infrastructure issues, you know, when local governments have not invested in infrastructure, it makes people leery of thinking of more units. Um, on that note, I noticed that um, you abstained from voting on SB 35, Senator Weiner's bill that would try to kind of streamline the development process for um, for uh, cities that aren't meeting their uh, affordable housing goals that the state puts out. Uh, what? Why did you abstain from that vote? Um, I wasn't sure. I, you know, I was kind of. I was. I, I was a little torn on it. Um, and ultimately, that's why I didn't vote on it. I thought it took, it was a good step. It was a step in the right direction. Uh, but I thought more could have been done. I mean, I think here was an opportunity to address some of the CEQA issues. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, it, it didn't probably do as much as it could have. You know, and it passed. So we'll see what it ends up doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, cer- it certainly wasn't, you know, it was kind of one that uh, I, I, I saw the arguments both for and against, and I wasn't overly convinced. I, I wasn't, obviously, I wasn't convinced by either one of them. So, <laughs> right. um, yeah, so I didn't, that's, what, that's why. Um, is, is there anything else about this issue that, that you think we should have asked you about um, that, that we, in our arrogance as reporters, neglected to? Wow, I never. I'm I'm becoming a bigger fan of you guys. You just even you uttering that sentence. Wow, it's impressive. Uh, no, I thought you guys were really thorough. Uh, Selene Mainshine, thank you for your time. We appreciate. Great it. talking to both of you. Feel better, man. Thanks. Take care. Talk, talk to you later, guys. Bye bye. Bye bye.